G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up today on The Story. So one of our first neighbours that we met, her name was Poo, P-O-O. We, we loved Poo. She would cook food out the front of her house. And so it was terrific. Actually, when my mother-in-law would come over, the kids used to love it and say, Omar, Omar, we're having Poo food for dinner tonight. <laughs> Omar would, you know, tut-tut at them. And what kind of food? You know, it's Poo food, you know. Um, but Poo became a good friend to our family. The Story. The story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, what would cause a family to leave everything in Australia to live for several years in a slum in Bangkok, Thailand? We'll find out today as Dr Ash Barker shares his and his family's story. Also, we'll hear how an unusually named book garnered worldwide attention and helped to bring work to many of the people living in that slum. Ash is chatting with Eric Scadabo in our Melbourne studios. Welcome to the program, Dr Ash Barker. Thank you for having me, Eric. It's great to be here. Glad to have you with us. And so we're going to talk about your time in the slum in Bangkok, Thailand, leaving everything to go there. But actually, the story goes back before that, because for a while you lived in a low socioeconomic area here in Melbourne. Is that right? Yep. So we lived in Springvale, which is a very multiracial, multicultural community. We'd been working with Youth for Christ and working in prisons and youth detention centers. And we were finding once kids were in the system, it was really difficult. And, uh, and so how could we prevent young people going to the systems or would go where they were from? And in Melbourne, these kids weren't coming from every neighbourhood. They were only coming from a few neighbourhoods. So we started youth clubs and camping programs and mentoring programs as part of Youth for Christ response to, to urban young people. And, and well, uh, I should interrupt you there because you keep yeah. on saying we. Tell us yeah. about how you met your wife. Yeah, well, I mean, actually, uh, Ange and I both stood up at a Tony Campolo meeting as 18-year-olds, ready to go anywhere for the cause of Christ. This idea that Jesus, uh, after what Jesus has done for me, uh, there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. Out of gratitude, um, we would give our lives, surrender our lives to Christ. Angela and I both made those commitments separately. We met six months later. Oh, is that right? Uh, and well, I, I thought you were like at the same meeting. We were at the same meeting, but we weren't together. Is so that right? We only met uh, six months later. Oh, wow. Uh, she thought she was going to Haiti. I thought I was going to China for some reason. We fell madly in love. We got married as 20-year-olds. But you then, both uh, had a heart for helping economically needy people? Yeah. What was the common denominator? Matthew 25, 31, the idea of the sheep and the goats, that as we do it to the least of these, we do it to Jesus. Something spiritual happens when we engage those who are suffering and those who are hurting. And I think for both, Andrew and I, that caught our imagination and our hearts. And mm-hmm. we started where we were. Um, I was in Dingley at a, uh, running youth groups and drop-in centres and working in schools as volunteers. And Andrew was working with homeless people in a Balcom infusion uh, kind of centre, and I think both of us were kind of say we're you know are, are we is this the real deal is this just a phase we're going through or is this what we committed to? And I think both of us were worried about committing to people who who wouldn't go all the way with with God that uh, that we really wanted to surrender our whole lives to God and and so we met each other we fell madly in love and, and so we got married as twenty year olds so we were quite young when we got married. Yeah. 
and started with Youth for Christ very quickly. So uh, Andrew was still finishing her social work degree. I was finishing my, my theology degree, but uh, working in juvenile detention centers initially. And so you mentioned that you were in the area of Springvale yes. on the east side of Melbourne. What brought about you living there? Yeah, so Dingley is where I grew up and where Angie and I first moved to when we were married. And we were starting to, it was when a lot of Vietnamese refugees were coming. We had our initial work in Dingley, youth clubs, and then needs really were just over the border. So it was not far away, Springvale, really. Um, in fact, in those days, Dingley was part of the city of Springvale. Oh, okay. Um, but it was a more affluent part of, of the city. And then we moved into the city centre, really to follow up with the young people, particularly Pacific Islanders, Vietnamese refugees, Cambodians, and to open our homes and lives together. Uh, we started churches. We started a group called Urban Neighbours of Hope. So that's really where the approach came from, uh, living in right next to the, the train station. In Springvale those days, we had, a, had a quite serious heroin problem. So mm. it was not uncommon to have, have young people dying and oh, on, wow. on, our, on our front nature strip. I still remember... Um, yeah, Ange was ringing the phone, ringing the ambulance. Ash, you know, someone's dropped. So I ran down and, and the, there was no pulse. There was no no breath. I'm about to, you know, do I do mouth to mouth. And I'm just praying, really, Lord, please do something. Yeah. And he came back to life, actually, while, while oh, I was wow. there. And he, I don't know who was more stunned, me or him. I didn't quite know what to do. <laughs> Bible college hadn't really prepared yeah, right. for me. Was so one of your classes? <laughs> to, huh? to, to, to come back to life on your front nature strip. So I, heard, I, I did the best I could. Would you like to come up for a cup of tea upstairs? So he came. <laughs> upstairs and I you know we heard his story and he just came out of prison this was a, a hard, harsh dose of heroin that that he wasn't prepared for and and I said look there's all kinds of reasons why you're here now but we prayed and you're 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 here and uh, God has a plan for your life and I think those kinds of experiences why they didn't happen all the time they they really formed us I think we found two lessons really one that when we love people and, and are open to god's love and help introduce people to jesus that miracles can happen people's lives can change mm-hmm. and 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 we saw that happening churches started etc but also our lives change that when people don't change a second miracle can happen that we become more compassionate we find our when um, they don't change yeah when that when other people don't change we change and how that, does that work well for example um one of the um, one of the young men we got to know was part of our youth club. His name was Metakore. His name means no parent in Pacific Island language. And uh, his his grandfather was struggling. There was so many kids in the house. He hadn't got to year seven. And uh, his grandfather said, "Would you take you know Metakore on?" You know, I said, "Well, he's part of my small group. Then I would you take him on like your son?" And wow. So I better t- talk to Ange about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and and I talked to Ange, and, and Ange, of course, this is what we've moved to Springvale. If we can't take up a kid who's named Metakore, no parent, you know, mm. what are we what are we doing? And so he became part of our life, and we got him through the whole of Year Eight. Um, he was a real character. I'm a very very funny funny kid. Um, we found out he actually had an, an intellectual disability. Um, later that year, he was about 14, I think it was, when um, his girlfriend ha- had a baby um, and Christine was born. And that just kind of, uh, the, the, the psychiatric kind of stuff really kicked in at that point. Mm. Started seeing faces in trees and becoming really paranoid, thought little baby Christine was trying to kill him and smashed windows and trying to break down doors to get at her. And uh, we loved him and we cared for him and believed that God would somehow heal and intervene. We went to hundreds of meetings with 
in and out of jails and hospitals and social workers. But um, but but he died. Actually, he got the phone call from the police saying, "You would you come and identify the body?" And uh, I still remember the funeral. Cook Island funerals are really kind of powerful. They're big mm-hmm. events and very emotional. Very emotional. People yelling and screaming, and you have an open casket. And uh, and I still remember kissing his forehead like others. And uh, and saying you didn't change the way we wanted. We prayed, and um, but I'm a different person. You took me to the edge. You took me to the margins. You showed me the way the world really is. Later, I, I reflected. Well, I, I was just going to say, at that point, somebody yeah. could say, "What am I doing here? I'm not even making a difference." Yeah, he's passed away. You know, throw in the towel. Yeah, but you're saying it it made you a better person. Is yes, that- it did. I, I don't know if you m- remember the movie Titanic. You know, there's Rose on the top deck, and my life by having great Christian parents, having really good people who loved me around me, it was a top deck kind of experience. Mm. And Metacore was like my Jack in the movie. He shows showed me the way the world really is, and so actually I became more determined because of the world the way the world really was, that so much suffering was going on that I wanted to try and prevent mm-hmm. this happening for other people. And a sense of call birthed in both Ange and I out of that tragedy that we that his legacy, Matus wouldn't die in vain, mm-hmm. that uh, we would dedicate our lives to seeing um, lives change through Jesus and that we would we would invest everything we had to do that. And Urban Neighbours of Hope started really, and, I, and it continues on in... One point, it was in you know, six different cities around the world, and workers were doing this, caring, standing with people, seeing people's skills and assets be developed, and social enterprises, and churches, and youth groups, and football clubs, all kinds of things, w- would come out of standing with people in solidarity and sharing our lives, and sharing Jesus, and uh, so yeah, so that was a really important part of uh, our journey. Okay, and so that was in the Melbourne That's area. In Melbourne. Yeah. How do we get from there to the slums of Bangkok? Yeah, we still felt that maybe we did have a chapter in us to go to to some of the world's poorest. And so we thought, well, we've got a sabbatical coming up. Maybe we should spend our time uh, in Vietnam. We work with a lot of Viet- now, Vietnamese people. Now, when people have some time off, they'll yeah. go to Hawaii or something. <laughs> yeah. you, you decided to go to the slums of... Uh- <laughs> yeah, well, initially to Viet- Vietnam, actually, oh, okay. because we thought maybe, uh, because we spoke Vietnamese, worked with a lot of Vietnamese young people. Oh, okay, made- so you already had that uh, familiarity with the culture. Yeah, yeah, in mm-hmm. Vietnam. Yep, yep. Uh, but actually, we couldn't get a visa long term, and and there's a uh, and so a friend of mine was at the Australian Embassy in Bangkok, and he said, "Well, come, come to." He knew us very well. We mm-hmm. were youth group together. Mick said to us, yeah, "Come to Bangkok. There's great slums here in Bangkok. You'll love it. <laughs> we got some great ones here." This is 1999, and uh, uh, we'd started Urban Neighbours over in '93, so it was kind of a good time to take stock of where we were going and. Actually, we fell in love with the place. And mm. a year later, I went to visit the families we stayed with. Angie had been working in an AIDS hospice. I'd been teaching football and English and writing a book. And uh, and I saw the families again. Blair and her family particularly had been very kind to us. And and I just, as I walked into the slum again, I just felt this sense I was home. This mm. is where I was supposed to be. And I didn't quite know what to do. with. I went back to Angie and said, I, I do wonder. Amy was... Um, about four years old at that mm-hmm. point. Your daughter? Our daughter. And uh, there was that kind of sense that if we went before she started, you know, get, getting fully into school, we kind of had some windows. And 
um, I'm trying to explain this rationally to Ange, but actually it was this intuition really that God wanted us to be at home in Klongtoy Slum. I mean, it's a slum of 100,000 people, two square kilometers. And Ange didn't blink. She, in fact, she burst into tears. That oh no, now I've done it. <laughs> but she said, "I thought we had to give up this dream. We talked about this as teenagers, and to have the opportunity to do it would be amazing." Now it took about eighteen months to be able to be in discernment and find out what mm-hmm. we needed and find visas and partners. We really wanted to work with the Church of Christ mm-hmm. in Thailand, which was the indigenous church, and then be invited in. Uh, amazingly, um, the head of our board at that time, John Gilmore, knew the head of the Church of Christ in. Thailand, Dr. Sint, and he said, wow, if you're interested in Klong Toy, we've actually got a community center. You're listening to The Story. Today, Ash Barker is sharing his story and the events that led to him and his family leaving everything in Australia to live for several years in a slum in Bangkok, Thailand. Next, we'll hear what life was like living in that slum and about an unusually named book written by one of their neighbours that garnered worldwide attention. That and more when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401-132-888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. Today, Dr. Ash Barker is sharing his story and about his lifelong work of ministering to people in poor urban neighbourhoods. Before the break, we heard about how he and his wife lived in a multicultural part of Melbourne. Next, we'll hear what it was like to live and minister to people in a slum in Bangkok, Thailand, and about how an unusually named book changed the lives of a number of people who live there. And so, yeah, we spent 12 years in Klong Toy. It was an incredibly demanding place. Um, dengue fever four times, dysentery, typhoid, typhus, oh, wow. uh, all those kind of things that your mm. body's just not used to yeah. living in open sewers and rats and all that kind of stuff. But it had such a profound impact to us. Well, you mentioned the book, the yeah, unusual yeah. name. Uh, Tell the story behind that one, please. Yeah. So, uh, so one of our first neighbours that we met, her name was Poo P O O. We loved Poo. She was one which of which was short for uh, shampoo. So shampoo is a. Uh, 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 is a fruit, but everyone called her Pooh, and we thought that was quite funny. Uh, she would cook food out the front of her house, and so it was terrific. Actually, when my mother-in-law would come over, the kids used to love it and say, Omar, Omar, we're having poo food for dinner tonight, and Omar would, you know, tut-tut at them, and what kind of food, you know, is poo food, you know. Uh, so we loved it. We thought it was quite funny. Uh, we didn't speak a lot of Thai when we first went there. We were in school there, to learn, learning the language. It was really tough. Um, but Pooh became a good friend to our family. One day, the price of rice went through the roof. Basically, the subsidies of the rice was taken off. And so, the price of rice went through the roof, but people's wages didn't go up. And Pooh, um, being a Buddhist person, really hoped that her luck would change. She went to the temple and all those kind of things to try and see whether her luck would change. She kept selling the food at that price and was starting to get into into serious debt. When you get into debt in a place like Klong Toy, the the 
the debt people are incredibly dangerous. It's basically mm. organized crime groups wow. that do that. So she was quite scared. She came to Ange one day and said, look, is there some way you can get me a job out of the slum maybe? And, and she had two boys, um, a husband that wasn't working a lot at that point. Um, and so she really was, you know, working from, from five in the morning till nine at night and, and still losing money. Wow. Uh, so Anne said, "Well, you're such a great cook. Why don't why don't you start a cooking school? It will be great fun. You're you're such good company with people. People would love it. And people pay a fortune here, foreigners, to learn how to cook Thai food. It's it's not yeah, it's around a new the world. thing. What do they call that? Uh, cooking tourism or something? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So." So, Ange, we had some friends come over who initially said, look, I couldn't do that. I don't have enough English. I don't have, a, you know. Mm-hmm. But we, we helped her learn English. Uh, and we had, when we had friends come over, she said, well, just try it out, you know. So, you take them to the local market. Markets in Bangkok are crazy. You know, there's cockroaches that are fried mm. to eat. And you've got frogs with their stomachs cut open, so the heart's still beating. And so, it's <laughs> oh, quite a, a freaky kind of market. <laughs> yeah, and then she buy the food for the ingredients and then take them back to her house and teach people how to cook yeah. nutrition quick, easy Thai meals. People loved it. And so when we launched um, the cooking school, uh, it became the number one thing to do on TripAdvisor within six months. Number wow. two was the Grand Palace. But the book you're talking about uh, was a friend of ours here from Melbourne, actually. She was a brilliant photographer. And she said, why don't you do a cookbook? You know, and so Ange worked with Pooh to do the ingredients and tell stories in the community. And then Shelley came over and took these brilliant photographs of the community and the food. Mm-hmm. And then we're talking with a, a journalist friend, you know, how do we you know, market this? How do we get it out there? And Ange came up with the idea, why don't we call the book Cooking with Poo? <laughs> and to this day, they've not, sent, they've not spent a cent in marketing. Uh, it sold 40,000 copies. The, the big breakthrough came when someone put the book in the Frankfurt Book Fair, the biggest book fair in the world. Wow. And it won the title of oddest book title of the year. <laughs> then comedians all around the world picked it up. And uh, actually, I, um, Pooh cooked with Jamie Oliver. You know, the, Is that right? Yeah, uh, and it did a show. If you look up Cooking with Pooh and Jamie Oliver, you'll see Jamie Oliver cooking right next to Pooh and learning. And, and, and the, the apron says, I cooked with Pooh. And I liked it. <laughs> and, uh, but the, the, the great thing about that isn't just this huge amount of income that was being brought in. Yeah, she was but, in a desperate situation. So yeah. this is an answer to prayer in itself. It was. And she really saw it as a gift from God. Interesting, when I tried to launch my book, Slum Life Rising, my PhD work on the rise of slums, and you need all the help you can get. So I have my celebrity chef friend, you know, Pooh, come, come to, this, to the Foreign Correspondents Press Club. <laughs> but the first question went to Pooh. And it was a really good question. It said, well, you're so successful, Pooh, with your book and with your cooking school, but you've got two boys and you continue to live in Klong Toy Slum, most notorious slum in Bangkok. Why do you stay if you don't need to? And she said, well, I'm not as wealthy as you might think. What we've been doing is keeping this money separate into a charity and we help other people start small businesses. Because I used to have to work from five in the morning till nine at night. And if we didn't, and even then, sometimes it wouldn't make. So I can never have a holiday, never have a day off. Well, now I can have a holiday. Now I can have days off. Mm. And uh, I want other people to have the same blessings that I have had. And so she stays. And uh, we were just there with her in July. And she's a rem- still this vibrant, um, wonderful person who's impacted so many people's lives. I think you talk about Miracle A's, other people's lives being transformed. Mm. The number of people's um, lives, not every day, the, the, the 
the people who come through a cooking school, but also the small businesses, the church she's part of, and uh, the joy that she brings to so many. It's just kind of a privilege. But you could never generate that yourself. You could mm. never come with a marketing plan. Okay, we're going to find someone with a funny name and market <laughs> book and sell 40,000 copies. It doesn't work like yeah, that. It works yeah. from the ground up. That as we seek to join with what God is doing in a community, um, it's amazing what fruit can come. But it's a, it's a special place. And, and even going back there just last month and seeing the um, seeing all our f- folks, hundreds of people, that uh, people never forget what, even the smallest thing that we've done over the mm. years, people remembered and, uh, and were, were grateful. And we, we felt it was such a big part of our lives and such a big influence on our theology and the way we view God. But also, um, just yeah, the friendships that were that mm. were generated in in that cauldron of um, have have kept us in good stead. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time. But you said you've gone back there because that's not where you are. You've gone on to another economically depressed area in the world. Yeah. So we really felt like our next season in life was how do we invest in urban leaders, mm-hmm. and we wanted to demonstrate that. And so we had an opportunity to work in inner city Birmingham. It's a tough neighbourhood, uh, a big, massive prison there, 1,600 prisoners. Um, there was a documentary made about our neighbourhood called uh, Benefit Street, which showed the depravity and the struggle that, that was happening in that community. And we took over a, a, an old disused vicarage and, uh, and all the kind of things we did in Bangkok with social enterprise um, to really demonstrate what, going, what were going on. But then... Uh, the trick is how do we mobilize and support and and grow leaders from within communities like that all around the country? Obviously, you're having a positive impact on the parts of the world that you've been in, in the economically poor area in the Melbourne area, then the slum of Bangkok, and now in a, another economically depressed part of Birmingham, England. But what if somebody said, okay, that's nice, you're helping people get jobs and income, but what about the spiritual impact? What would you say? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's impossible to separate the spiritual from the physical. As Christians, we believe the word became flesh and blood and moved mm-hmm. into the yep. neighborhood, that God values the physical and, and is present. And so I, I, I don't think it's as simple as saying this is the spiritual bit, this is the physical bit. It's all integrated. So for us, Jesus is about life and having life in abundance and fullness. And so what we want to see happen is people to encounter this Jesus who will give them life. Mm-hmm. And so we give opportunity for that as part of what we're doing. It's a normal part of our life. It doesn't have to be an extra bit. It isn't even a bit that um, we're going to give you food and come to this community meal, but what we really want you to do is come along to our church. No, feeding people, enabling people to have food and being involved in uh, as friends and part of the community, all that's good. And so sharing Jesus becomes a natural part of our life. And so people will come, you know, uh, want that opportunity to go deeper. Um, I think there's different kind of on-ramps for that, but we want to make sure people want to do it as a response to Jesus, not just uh, out of manipulation. Sometimes with vulnerable people, and you see this, I saw this all the time in Bangkok actually, a lot, where people, the so-called rice Christians, that mm. you know, will offer you rice if you become a Christian. and Kind of a conditional love. Conditional thing. love. And, yeah. and poor folk will sometimes, who are desperate enough, will do it for the moment, mm. and they'll go through the... You know, through the motions, but it's of not it. genuine. It's from not the heart. genuine. It's not from the heart. In fact, people become very resentful of Christians, and Christians yeah. have a bad name for doing that. So we wanted to make sure that people are interested in following Jesus, knowing more about the life that shines in us. So if I'm under- opportunity to do if it. I'm understanding you correctly, you want to genuinely love people. Yes, 
And then once they're feel loved, they'll yeah. want to know, well, what are you about? There's something different about you. That's right. So that's uh, a more of a genuine response. Yeah. And, and, and yes, that's right. And I think when people respond genuine, when we're genuine with people mm-hmm. and people are genuine with us, that Jesus is found in the middle of those discussions and relationships. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there is this mystical kind of encounter. I think that's what Jesus was talking about when he says, when you do it to the least of these, you do it to me that we find Jesus in that we encounter Jesus through the other person and the other person encounters Jesus through us. It's mystical. It's spiritual. I don't know how to explain it, but I know it happens. I know people sense Jesus' presence being close. And our message to everybody was that Jesus is not far away from any mm-hmm. one of us. And that if we reach out to him, he will, he will, you know, he's, he's reaching out to each of us anyway. And so we, we just need to respond to him and he will, he, you know, it is about surrender. It is about giving up our lives, but we move half a step to Jesus. Jesus moves a full step to us. Mm. And, uh, and that's, that's a story of grace and, uh, the faithfulness of God to each of us if we're open to it. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Oh, pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Ash Barker sharing his story. He's currently the director of New Begin, School of Urban Leadership located in Birmingham, England. It was great to hear how Ash and his wife have a heart for helping people in poor economic circumstances in various areas around the world. As the Bible says in Matthew 25 verse 40, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. For more information about Dr. Ash Barker and his ministry work in England, their website is newbeginhouse.uk. That's newbeginhouse.uk. Well, thanks for joining us for Ash's inspiring story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. It was quite an emotional morning and it was full of trepidation. (laughs) Um, So many things we'd been told about how the baby could be deformed, how just funny things that go through your mind that that can be so scary because you have no idea how to respond or how to feel or what the outcome's going to be. In 1998, Sarah Jolliker was 15 weeks pregnant with her second child when she received some devastating news. The doctors said her baby did not have all the required body parts to survive outside of the womb. Sarah shares how the Lord guided her and her husband through the challenges they faced next time. The story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.